Coming up on the FSR Sarkfighter podcast, John Martin's doctor told him to get his affairs in order. And so he said, I, again, I'm not looking to alarm you, but we need to act quickly to find out if that is in fact what you have. So after I sort of picked myself up off the floor, not understanding what he just said, I left the office and called my wife and explained, I, I don't know what just happened, but I don't think it's good. And so it turned out not to be cancer. It was sarcoidosis, but life just hasn't been the same. My faith has really helped me to see that there are things, even in the midst of this, that I can just account for and just be grateful that I still can, I can still walk, I can run occasionally, I can, uh, I can do my job, I'm not disabled, I can function largely normally compared to the rest of the world. Hear John's story coming up. This is the Sark Fighter Podcast living with sarcoidosis and other rare diseases. Here's your host, John Carlin. Hello, and once again, Happy New Year. This is episode 104 of the FSR Sark Fighter podcast. I'm your host, John Carlin, and I'm recording today on January 14th of 2024. This episode is brought to you by ATAR Pharmaceuticals. To learn more about their new pulmonary sarcoidosis trial called EFSOFIT, visit stopsarcoidosis.org slash trial, and there's a link in the show notes. Well, I hope you're feeling as well as you can be if you are in the sarcoidosis space. Remember, I do the podcast to kind of help you understand what's going on with you and to give you a sense of hope as you deal with this unpredictable disease. And if you did not listen to the previous episode yet, I hope you'll do. I hope you go back and listen as I talked about something called the Zygarnik effect, which has to do with how our brains keep chapters open in our minds if they are unresolved and how they tend to close those chapters if you finally uh, figure out what was going on. And all of that explains a little bit about that term we're very familiar with, closure, and its importance. But it also has to do with hope. And it really looks at how knowing what's going on in a given situation really gives you peace of mind. And I kind of tied that back into sarcoidosis, which kind of doesn't do that. So uh, the Zygarnik effect, that was back in episode 103. Okay, I shared with you also in the previous episode that uh, I was suffering from COVID at the uh, right as the new year began. Well, I'm over it. <laughs> I'm over it. I'm glad, glad to tell you that. It wasn't too bad of a case. I spent pretty much one afternoon just sort of shivering in bed with that fever and the cough and, and you know, and all that, but, uh, but I'm over it. Uh, pretty much, I guess that's, that's what COVID is anymore. It's the second time I've had it. And I also shared with you that I had visited my elderly parents over the holidays and that they both got COVID presumably from me, but they have uh, turned the corner as well. So, phew. Okay. Uh, health-wise, I'll tell you, it is cold here in Virginia. We are, we're going to be seeing some single-digit temperatures and it is not cycling weather. 
And of course, uh, if you listen, you know that uh, my my fitness activity revolves around riding a bicycle, but even I will not go out and, and ride a bike in that kind of weather. So I've moved everything indoors. I am back at the YMCA a couple nights a week. I'm lifting weights. Not my favorite thing, I'll admit, but uh, I do feel better when I do it. I feel stronger. I, ha- I actually have more energy. Uh, and I know that, you know, my muscles atrophy from age, number one, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm getting older, and then just not using them. So just my, what I call walking around strength and fitness, things like carrying a box, carrying a grandchild, picking things up, taking out the trash, just little stuff like that. Um, you know, if when I'm not lifting weights, I'm at an age, and thanks to sarcoidosis also, where you know, I start to notice those things. Someone will say, uh, you know, can, can you carry that grandchild who's four years old up to the car for me? I'm like, sure. And then inside I'm going, oh, no, I need a, this, is, this child is heavy. <laughs> it's not that I can't do it, but it's, it's, a, you know, it's more of a struggle. It used to be something you wouldn't even think about. Now you at least got to think about it. So back in the gym, and uh, I think that, that it's going to help me in the long run. And my goal is to stay in the gym until daylight savings time returns sometime in April, at which point I'll be riding my bikes in the evening again, which is my favorite time of day to ride. And that will probably preclude a lot of weightlifting. So I've got good three and a half months of of in the gym working out to do. And you know, and so far, I've been able to make myself go and to do it a couple nights a week. Uh, meanwhile, and I also have the Peloton exercise bike, which you hear me mention, uh, because you can follow friends on Peloton. And if you have a Peloton device and you look up Sark Fighter, all one word, uh, you'll find me and you can follow me. And if you let me know, I will follow you back. I'm, I'm not real good at using that app. I kind of just turn it on and turn on the bike and go. Um, but, um, if I know to look for you, I will definitely follow you back. Okay. Uh, and the docs do tell me that it is good for my sarcoidosis and therefore ipso facto, presumably yours to do a variety of things workout wise. And so, uh, I just want to, I want to let you know that I'm doing it. Maybe that'll give you a little bump of motivation and, and you'll want to do it as well. And again, I'm amazed at the number of people who reach out to me and contact me, who've listened to the podcast and they have been or are uh, fitness-related people uh, who have been struck down in some way by sarcoidosis. Speaking of which, I'll just share with you this little brief. Sarcoidosis News is reporting a study that shows that heart imaging may help ID at-risk cardiac sarcoidosis patients. And I'll just give you some of the cliff notes here. A non-invasive heart imaging scan may help identify cardiac sarcoidosis patients at risk of worse clinical outcomes, according to a study. And this is reported by Patricia Ignacio, PhD. Uh, It's dated January 3rd, 2024. The study, which was entitled Optimal Left Ventricular Ejection Fraction in Risk Stratification of Patients with Cardiac Sarcoidosis, was initially published in the journal EP Europace. And uh, it does, it gets fairly technical, and there's a lot of medical terms in there. 
So again, I will just I'll just hit some of the high points for you. But basically, what it said is less than ten percent of patients are said to show symptoms of cardiac sarcoidosis, of course, in which granulomas are found in the heart, uh, accompanied by an irregular and fast heartbeat, which of course is known as atrial fibrillation and cardiac dysfunction. But the heart imaging it found and other analyses suggested that cardiac sarcoidosis may be more prevalent than is thought, affecting not 10%, but up to 30% of patients. So maybe three times as many as initially thought. And then it says, according to researchers, early diagnosis of cardiac sarcoidosis and identifying patients who are at risk of worse outcomes is still a challenge. And they talked about a team at Cleveland Clinic in Ohio, which is now seeking to determine the optimal cutoff value of a patient's LVEF, which predicts the risk for ventricular arrhythmia and death by any cause. And then it goes on and and it it cites the study and it talks about the number of people who participated and all that. And and it's all um, very much study-related stuff. Uh, But what I'll do is if this is a language that you speak easily, uh, you can look it up by all means. Uh, I'll put a link in the show notes and you you can read it at your leisure. Um, But moving on, I have a great interview to share with you today. John Martin reached out to me after a recent podcast saying the story of Kevin Moore, whose email that I shared with you back in episode 98 resonated with him, a bit of uh, Kevin's initial email. He'd written in part, I wanted to reach out to you to share my story, like most of the stories I've listened to on your podcast before I found myself in the Vanderbilt, Vanderbilt ICU with heart failure and fighting for my life and later diagnosed with cardiac sarcoidosis, something I had never even heard of. I, at that time, was a healthy 42-year-old male. I had never been in the hospital. I lived a healthy lifestyle, exercised daily, and was an avid runner. Almost a year after my heart event, I can... I am still coming to grasp with living with cardiac sarcoidosis and trying to live the best life that I can. So that was what Kevin Moore had written to me. I read it on the podcast. John Martin then wrote and asked me to make a connection, which I did via email. So he and Kevin have now communicated back and forth. And then I talked to I talked to John and I said, why don't you come on and share your story? Uh, once again, John was a standout athlete most of his life. Uh, I mean, a really, really good athlete. Give you an idea, and you'll hear him talk about this. Um, but as he got into his 50s, he began to slow down abnormally because he read that only a small fraction of people could run a five-minute mile when they were in their 50s, and he thought, well, I can do that. <laughs> I'm like, really? A five-minute mile in your 50s? I ran a five-minute mile in high school. And I don't think I've, I came within a breath of it, even after a career as an adult runner. So he's in his 50s thinking, oh, yeah, I'll go out and train and I can get down, get down to a five-minute mile. Um, well, bottom line is that he could not. And then some other things started to go wrong for him. In fact, he began having trouble with his eyesight as well. And all of that comes back to sarcoidosis. And his story is next here on the FSR Sark Fighter Podcast. I feel like a zombie Just feeding and stumbling Hey! 
Hi, I hope you're enjoying the Sark Fighter Podcast. You may be wondering, what can I do to help? How can I be a part of the sarcoidosis solution? It's simple. Make a donation to KISS. Kick in to stop sarcoidosis. 100% of the money goes to the Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research. Look for a link in the show notes of the Sark Fighter Podcast. Welcome back to the FSR Sark Fighter Podcast. Joining me now is John Martin, who is in Pennsylvania. John, welcome to the podcast today. Thank you, John. I appreciate the opportunity to meet you and an opportunity to reach out to folks that are dealing with the same stuff I'm dealing with. Yeah, gotcha. Thank you. Thank you for uh, agreeing to do that. Um, you are um, near Lancaster, Pennsylvania. That's Pennsylvania Dutch country, right? Sure. Yeah, uh, Lancaster County is full of buggies with the Amish. So that's our; those are our neighbors. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Um, so uh, you started feeling badly right before the pandemic, thereabouts. What What was going on with you? Yeah, so eighteen, nineteen time frame. Okay, just started feeling fatigue that was a little unusual. Uh, I was very active. In the work that I did, I was a remodeling contractor, and uh, I just found I was I was kind of having days where I really didn't have the energy I was used to, and then I started getting a series of uh, strep throat infections that wouldn't clear very easily, and uh, other bouts with alopecia. Uh, so I lost hair, and lost which hair, was yeah. odd. it was an odd kind of thing. I I generally have been a healthy person, and so during that time frame, I started seeing my family doc and. He would run tests for Lyme and for uh, just general blood tests. And there was never, never really anything that was unusual. Uh, some of my white blood cell counts would be a little off, but there was nothing that was truly identifiable. Um, and that that went on for probably about a year. Okay. Well, you were... You, you said that you were driving in a snowstorm and your eyes started to um yeah you were having a hard time seeing the lane lines and that kind of stuff which you know you're in a snowstorm so you know uh it must have been really bad to to be worse than what you thought the weather was presenting so you you started going to to see an eye doctor i did so this was in uh january of 2020 so you right right around the, the kind of the beginning of the pandemic and we were coming home from an event and it was a light snowstorm, but enough to kind of get you really paying attention to the road. And I found the glare off the road and the ability to see the lane lines were just challenging, not like I've ever experienced before. And so I did go see just an optometrist to have my eyesight checked. And in the process of that appointment, uh, the optometrist identified that I had cataracts and here I was 50 years old. She said, it's not uncommon that you have cataracts. They're early onset. And she referred me to see a surgeon to have the cataracts addressed. And that that was my early indication, though I thought it was something as simple as cataracts, that, that there was something not quite right. Then advance that story with your eyes a little bit. It turns out you did have cataracts, but there was also something else creeping in. And... Um, <laughs> So tell me that. And then I want to hear the story about how the doctor told you to make sure your affairs were in order. I mean, 
that's a pretty serious conversation. Yeah, my wife and I, today we can laugh about that. We weren't laughing a whole lot of time. So uh, I had set appointment with the eye surgeon um, for the cataracts and the appointment kept getting pushed back because offices were closed and they weren't seeing patients during the pandemic. So what was going to happen in March, April timeframe got pushed back until the, about the first week of July. And all throughout that time period between when she told me about the cataracts and when I went to see the, the surgeon, my eyesight just, it just declined. And I would see floaters and bright spots. And I attributed all of that to this situation. I just thought, well, I'll just wait till I see the physician. And by the time I got into the office and I met with the, uh, the specialist, he had taken some images, which were routine, and then um, sat me in a waiting area and asked me to go back eventually to go get additional scans because what they were reading was not conclusive. And so I didn't think much of it. By the time I went back, got the second set of scans and they put me back in the exam room, uh, I could tell something wasn't quite right. And so he had a very somber sort of approach and just said, I, I don't want to frighten you, but I think what you're dealing with is not cataracts. Though they are there, they're not advanced. What you are instead dealing with, I'm fairly well convinced, he said, is a melanoma, so a cancer, that he said it's fairly rare, but if I'm correct, it is likely a mis uh, metastasized. Metastasized, sure, yep. Getting worse. Um, and so he said, "I again, I'm not looking to alarm you, but we need to act quickly to find out if that is in fact what you have. So after I sort of picked myself up off the floor, not understanding what he just said, I left the office and called my wife and explained, I, I don't know what just happened, but I don't think it's good. And so we, uh, we talked on the phone and I saw a specialist the next day to look at uh, determining if this was in fact cancer or if it was something else. Thankfully, the, the, the cancer diagnosis was not definitive. So the, they backed off of that, but the evening before, so after that visit, a dear man, he, the, the, the physician, he called me at home and just said, I, I want to make sure you were doing okay. And, and then he said, I, I also really want to make sure that if this is what I think it is that you, you really put your affairs in order because this, there's not a very good prognosis coming out of this. And that really, shook me to the core. Um, like I said, we weren't laughing at the time. <laughs> Today we can laugh about that experience and and we're grateful it didn't it didn't turn out to what he had suspected. Yes, because it was sarcoidosis, right? It, it was in fact, yeah. So the next day when I had a, a retinal scan and uh, another physician look at it that specializes in the retina, he made the determination. He said, I think it's one of two things. It's either cancer or it is either, he mentioned sarcoidosis. I was not familiar with it. I had never heard of it. But he said it's an inflammatory disease that can affect the eyes. And in your case, you have a lesion, a rather large lesion near your optic nerve. And we can't do a biopsy to determine if it's sarcoidosis, but we can do some testing to narrow it down. And so out of that test, they sent me for a CT scan. And in about four days or so, their decision was, we're pretty certain it's not cancer. We're not 100% sure, but we need to refer you to a specialist for sarcoid. And that's where that, that's where I went from there. 
Gotcha. And so is that when you started going to Johns Hopkins? That's correct. Yeah. Thankfully, uh, in our area, Johns Hopkins is about a 90 minute drive. Okay. And the University of Pennsylvania is similar, um, both of which had sarcoidosis clinics. At the time, I reached out to UPenn first, and they were not taking new patients. They were not sure they were going to continue their clinic. And Johns Hopkins, I got a referral there and met with my current pulmonologist because it was determined I had it in my lungs as well. She is my kind of a chief doctor, and I see a special, an eye specialist routinely several times a year to monitor my eye. Yeah. So uh, how did you get from ocular to lungs? Did they just automatically start looking because that's what sarcoidosis does, or were you having some sort of a effect from it? Well, exactly. They they said, well, it's most common in the lungs. We're going to do a CT, CT scan, whole body CT scan, just to see if we see anything else, whether it be cancer, tumors. And out of that, they saw quite a bit of activity in my lungs and determined that if it's sarcoid, it's consistent because it would be granulomas. Um, and so when they referred me down to Hopkins and they did more evaluation and reread my CT scans, they had a strong suspicion it was cardiac, it was not cardiac, excuse me, pulmonary sarcoidosis in addition to ocular. Gotcha. So, um, and we'll get to your heart here in a little bit, because I know that that also had some sort of issue, but, uh, sure. but, but that's somewhat inconclusive, leaning away from Sark right now, but I want to, so I want to ask you, so, and that's how this goes with sarcoidosis, right? You have a sarcoidosis doctor, and then you have people have come on and they've said, yeah, I have all these ists, you know, this special ist, you know, cardiologist, you know what I mean? Um, so you have a you have specialists in in whatever area where the sarcoidosis decides to show up in your body. So, uh, but your your chief doctor is a pulmonologist, right? Your your quarterback, as it were. Yep, exactly. Thank yeah. you, Michelle Sharp is a pulmonologist. Is the co chair of the clinic yeah. in, in Hopkins, and she's been wonderful. She is. She has helped my wife and I kind of deal with the ups and downs that this whole disease has dealt us. And uh, she has referred us to really good uh, experts for eye. And for now, I just was referred yesterday to a new cardiologist to investigate uh, cardiac uh, condition as well. So let's um, well, let's go ahead and deal with the heart first. But then I want to go back and ask you how they approached your um Sure. Your medication and so forth, because I know prednisone was involved at a fairly high dose. But um, so you've you started having some issues with your heart. Can you tell us about that? Sure, sure. Throughout the past few years with dealing with the sarcoidosis and my line of work had me working. I was a contractor and I worked on uh, distressed properties. So I was involved in flipping properties and Typically those properties, you know, you get them for a reason. They're mold ridden and they have water damage and, you know, you're just in an environment that is, is often very challenging. And it was continuing to kind of just beat me down because of the conditions. And so after some time, several years, I finally made the decision that I was going to change occupations, or at least get out of that, that specific environment. And I did that about uh, about 14 months ago, 16 months ago, something like that. And in that time frame, when I left those environments, so this was in September of 22, 
I started to feel a remarkable improvement. And so symptoms for pulmonary were going away. I was not feeling some of the familiar, a lot of like bone pain and muscle pain that was starting to be eliminated. And so it was great and I felt wonderful, but we kept throwing out the idea with my pulmonologist that we need to eliminate cardiac because we've never done that. We've done every other area, but we need to be sure that we can rule that out because maybe we can drop your medication. And so February of last year in 23, uh, she sent me for an echo and I had an echo done maybe two years prior, which came back fine. And then I was completely broadside hit by the news that my mitral valve had developed a pretty significant leak to the point where I had to have surgery uh, back in a year ago, basically. Mm, Open heart surgery. I chose the open heart procedure. There's a secondary type of non less invasive procedure that, uh, that I chose not to go through with. And I'm glad I did that. I, my recovery was very straightforward. I felt like I recovered well from, from the surgery. And, uh, and then after the surgery, we revisited, have we ruled out sarcoidosis as maybe the, uh, the cause for the mitral valve. And we kind of went down the path of trying to figure that out. And that it, it, to date right now is somewhat inconclusive, but the doctor is leaning towards that being a no, that my mitral valve problem was really a result of a genetic issue, which has been known in my family. Okay. All right. So, but it's still, it's still in play because obviously I think you just said that you've gotten uh, referred to a new doctor just Yet, did you say yesterday? As as when yeah, just doing? just this week. Yep, yeah, yesterday okay. got the referral. So the reason for that, since my surgery, of course, we had some follow up tests. I had mentioned I had a PET scan to rule out inflammation in the heart, and the PET scan revealed that there was an injury that was sustained, uh, not a heart attack. Um, I have elevated heart enzymes, which would would ordinarily be indi- indicative of a heart attack, but I don't have. Uh, congestive issues. And so they had me take an MRI uh, at a little bit lower dose of my current prednisone and confirmed that there w- there is and was an injury and the origin of that is still not sure. So that's okay. what we're looking at now. Gotcha. All right. Well, we'll, we'll uh, just keep us posted on that in case it comes back to be uh, sarcoidosis related. And we hope obviously everything turns out okay. But so you, you. Uh, you mentioned your prednisone and what was, when you were first diagnosed, I would assume they hit you pretty hard with it. What were you, what were your daily milligrams? I started at 40 um, and they said, we want to see if your eye responds to it because if the eye doesn't respond to prednisone, we need to look at other differentials. So initially the eye was responding, but it wasn't responding really well. So I went up to 60 for a period of time and the 60 seemed to be effective. And it controlled the eye. And what I learned in that process, and this still continues to be kind of the, the pecking order in my treatment, is they watch the eye carefully because the scarring that has happened is irreversible. Ooh. And so if you can if you can prevent it from scarring and deal with inflammation when and if it happens, so they call that kind of the first line. The lungs are secondary in my care but the lungs are the easier things for me to monitor. I can tell when I don't feel well, I can't 
tell the difference between a bad day with my eyes and a problem with SARC. And thankfully, to date, as we've lowered the prednisone, and I've been on multiple other, I was on Celsep for a while, for about a year. I was on methotrexate for about a year. But neither of those really proved to be effective, countered against their side effects. And so we just keep coming back to prednisone. And since I've been away from the really dirty work environments, there has been an improvement. So I'm currently down and just dropped to 10 with the hope that under 10, we can take the PET scan again for my part and determine for sure, is there inflammation or not at the lower dose? And where we go from there, I'm not sure. If, it's, if we can maintain it and the, and the SARC is under control at 10, she says that that's a safer dose for me to maintain for a longer period of time. Well, I agree with that. I, you know, <clears throat> we've, we've talked about prednisone um, ad nauseum on this podcast, and I've looked into it quite a lot myself because of, of all my issues with it. But you don't want to be on high doses of prednisone for a long time. All kinds of bad things start happening then. Yeah, I, I I think my experience on it has has been exactly that is sometimes I wonder if the cure is worse than the disease because I I take medication for degraded bone density. Um, I've dealt with other issues. Uh, they they do exas exacerbate the eyes a little bit as well, um, but that's not been a great concern. But um, you know, longer term, I, I really would like to find a solution that doesn't have me on the corticosteroids. Right. So how are your eyes right now today? They're okay. I, I, I uh, just got a prescription for new glasses. I've not been wearing my regular glasses because they're just not quite tuned in. And I'm hoping when I do get my new glasses that I'll actually be able to see a remarkable difference. I, I expect that. The, the, the damage done to my eye is kind of this subtle thing that I just love learned to live with. It grays out in certain regions. Hmm. So it, it's, it's as if there's a blind spot, but there's still color and something there, but it's, it's very misleading. So what I see with my right eye is not the same story I see with my left. And I've just learned, I think my brain is kind of adapted and I do most of my vision with my left eye. Um, and it works. It's, it makes my eyes tired. So they're driving at night becomes a little bit more challenging. Um, and I don't want to lose any more. So I, we do spend a fair amount of time and attention on, on monitoring my eyes. Yeah, but I guess you would. So you um, have a wife and a family. Did you tell me four kids? Do Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're fairly grown. We got uh -huh. one at right now temporarily, but uh, all of our kids are, are uh, college age and beyond. And uh my wife and I, we've been married 30 years. We celebrated 30 years last uh, November. And uh, yeah, just family's wonderful. Uh, you know, if, if anything, this disease has taught me to value those relationships in a way that I frankly didn't before. And so I'm grateful for that. Yeah. Yep. And your, your, your uh, adult kids, as it were, college age kids, um, all of this kind of started happening about the time that they were starting to leave the nest, as it were. Yeah, that's true. So our youngest at the time was still in high school. Uh, two of our kids were in college and our eldest was in graduate school. So they were all kind of in the, they'd come home for periods of time. Some were a little bit more independent than others uh, during that time period. And we, 
I really debated before I knew what my diagnosis was. I mean, in that time frame where that physician kind of scared my socks off about preparing, you know, my affairs. We were all home from COVID, except for one daughter who was away from home. And so we kind of met as a family and talked about it. And it was pretty emotional for me because I I thought if the gravity of this is what he's suggesting, my time might be pretty limited. So I was grateful for the chance, a little humbled and embarrassed after the fact when I realized it wasn't that. But I'll, I, I'd do it again in a heartbeat just to, to be able to interact with my kids and my wife in a way that, that I didn't before. Yeah. Well, you only know what you know. And, and you know, sure. this doctor took the time to call you even after, you know, that evening to say, hey, you know, if I'm right, this, this, is, this, is, this is bad news for you. Um, so, I, so that's what you're living with until somebody could tell you something different. Indeed, yep. Wow. Wow. Well, let's uh, let's just thank God that that's exactly the way it went. And and, and speaking of that, you, your faith, uh, you've been leaning into your faith. Uh, and I, I've heard that from a lot of different people who've who appeared on the podcast. How is how has that changed? Yeah, that's you know, it's interesting. I, I, I think back to my time on the early doses of prednisone. Of course, like you said before, you don't know what you don't know. Um. I did, had no idea the impact of prednisone on your emotions. And so I just remember having this, I've heard you say that it really it caused you to get more irritable. Uh, I had the exact opposite effect. I had a tremendous amount of what I thought was clarity in terms of people around me and kind of just having compassion for people. So uh, I can remember multiple times having conversations about my faith in line at Home Depot, where I did most of my shopping for my, for my job sites. And uh, in a way that was very easy and very natural uh, for me. And I discovered and a kind of level of euphoria, which was like, in some ways I missed that because the, the air felt a little clearer, the sun seemed a little brighter. Uh, I, I think in some ways I just could see my circumstances a little bit differently. Um, and so out of all of this experience, I think what has helped me much, uh, has been the idea. Just re-listened to a sermon from Timothy Keller, uh, that I've, I've listened to multiple times and what he had said in that sermon that just re resounds in my mind is that we are instructed to, uh, to not thank God for our sufferings, but to thank God in our sufferings. And so we can rejoice while we're in the middle of really challenging things. And I've learned that this is challenging, but there's a lot more challenging things that, that befall other people. And my faith has really helped me to see that there are things even in the midst of this that I can just account for and just be grateful that I still can, I can still walk. I can run occasionally. I can, uh, I can do my job. I'm not disabled. I can function largely normally compared to the rest of the world. I am grateful for that. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. Now you, you moved away from the home, deconstruction and reconstruction flipping houses business what what are you doing now so i work as a uh, a facility manager at a large church in our community and so i still do some elements of what i did i was very hands-on in my work before so i still enjoy that 
I have a small staff I oversee for custodial and maintenance, and it is a lower pressure position than I, what I was doing before. And that is one thing I would say to, to listeners, if you are dealing with a high stress environment, that definitely does not promote healing, um, for particularly for this disease. And I didn't even realize how much stress I was putting myself under while I was operating in that capacity. So uh, I was self-employed and I decided to, to kind of take a step back and it was a really good move for me. I think my health has improved. Uh, it has allowed me to step back and look at things from a different perspective. I, I miss what I did, but I certainly, uh, certainly appreciate the fact that there are some net positives. I hear you. Now, and I've got to ask you because you uh, you mentioned that you were a competitive runner in high school and in college. So did you actually ran like intercollegiately? I did. I did. I ran at NCAA Division three school. So okay. if we put that on the right scale, I was a, a modestly successful runner. Um, I really enjoyed running throughout high school and college. And I competed for several years after college till we started a family. So you're running like the local 5Ks, 10Ks, marathons? Yeah, did did a few marathons. Uh, I had always thought I have a good friend. He's been at it for 30-something years at the Boston Marathon. He's been plugging away at it. And so he got me interested. And I thought that was going to be my thing. I would just do that every year. I did it a couple of times, but I just could not maintain that when the kids were young. I stopped competing and training. Um, and I'm glad that I did that, but I watch him and I think he's still at it. He's in his sixties and he's gone, I think 33 years without missing one. Without missing a Boston marathon. Exactly. Yeah. It's so crazy. He's, he's good enough to keep requalifying then. Yeah. Yeah. He's uh, and, and there's a club he goes to every time they go to yeah. the event where they get together for dinner and that number gets smaller and smaller. So he is in the top five or six of, of uh, consecutive competitions at the Boston Marathon. Wow. Wow. Does he, does he buy the jacket every year? Oh, I think so. Yeah. So he's, he's got a closet full of those. I'm sure. Yeah. Cause back we <laughs> trained together for a number of years and, and one year we were actually two years, I guess that I ran up there. We were both in the event and of course, naturally he was always there. So right. uh, he coached me through where to go and how to, you know, get around. This was in the years before they did the wave starts. So you had to, find your corral and get started. And yeah. I really enjoyed it. I thought I'd stick with marathoning for a long time, but uh, you know, other priorities came, came along and they were more important. Right. And now you, uh, you mentioned you were riding your bicycle. Of course it's the winter time now, but you started riding your bicycle as well. So uh, if you're on this podcast and you ride a bike, we have to talk about that. <laughs> yeah. I took up cycling. A good friend of mine uh, encouraged me to do it. And I'll be honest, uh, running had become kind of an idol for me for periods of time in my life. And I recognized I needed something with no history. So he was kind of into the cycling thing and I was, I bought a bike and I started riding with him. And so for years back when my kids were young, so this was something that we would kind of, you know, fit into the schedule. There was always something, there was one event that we would do. It was a 200 mile um, weekend ride thing that we would do together. And that really was a motivator for me. And, and I liked it because I did not have a history in it. I didn't have to worry about how fast I was riding or how far I went. It really was enjoyable. And I really enjoyed it. I, I had, I think I've shelved this now. I'm perhaps this will be re resurfaced. I have, 
I had an aspiration to ride across the country just to say I did it and to just enjoy that experience. And uh, I, I don't know if I'll ever do it. I have a daughter that's kind of taken up the bug. And so she's she's thinking about doing it about a 2,400 mile bike ride this summer. And I would love to volunteer to do it with her, but I just don't think physically I'm able. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Uh, I, that's one of my goals as well. Um, of course, you have to have the time off from work as well as the exactly. fitness and, and sarcoidosis parking itself for a little while in order to be able to do that. And I think it takes uh, what about two and a half, three months for most people to do it. So um, I keep looking at 65 as a retirement age. And then how many good years might I have after that? That's assuming my sarcoidosis stays, you know, not doesn't, isn't a problem. Um, and then actually being able to do it. Right. That's yeah. There's a few variables in there that you can control and some you can't, some you just can't, but yeah. So you and I have similar aspirations there, but you thought, you know, you, you, you stopped being a competitive endurance athlete when you were focusing on your family, but you thought, well, you know, the family will in, in time, they'll move on and I'll, I'll get back to it. And lo and behold, you hit a roadblock. Yeah. It, it, interestingly enough, it coincides some with my health here with sarcoidosis. <laughs> Back as I was approaching age 50, I did a little quick research and I realized there's very, very few people that can run a five minute mile at age 50. And I thought, well, I can do that. I'm sure I can do that. So I started to train for that. And this is around the time that my daughter, she was finishing up high school and she was a very competitive runner. And I thought, well, I've got an actual training partner if I like to just follow her along. And I tried to do a time trial with her at one point and realized I can last about a lap with her, a lap and a half. And I thought, well, I've really fallen off. I just better train a little harder. And I tried a couple of time trials in that time period prior to knowing what I was dealing with. And I just, my lungs were killing me and I would run about a seven or about a six minute mile as fast as I could go. And I thought, well, I'm never going to get to five minutes. Uh, and I just expected when I was in my 30s, when we were having children, all that time away from the event, I would be motivated when I got older and I thought that this would be something that I would jump back into. And in some ways, I'm sad that I haven't been able to do that. But in other ways, I'm very grateful because I do not want to have the same challenges I had when I was in my 20s where it became a bit obsessive. And I thought, mm -hmm. my, my wife's more important to me than running. My kids are more important to me than running. And I, and I, if it force, if this forces me to have that perspective, then I'm grateful for it. But it is, it is something that has changed my perspective. Now the, the five minute mile that you were unable to do, is that because you had aged because you lose something like 10% a year? If I, if I'm rem remembering the articles that I've read about that. <laughs> Was it because of age or was it because sarcoidosis was creeping into your lungs and you didn't know it? I think my lung capacity had already been affected because it was yeah. in that same time frame. Uh, a handful of years before when my youngest was, I think in the eighth or ninth grade, we went to my alma mater as an event where you could run as an alum in a mile. And I had hardly done anything and I ran pretty close to five minutes, maybe three or four years prior to that. So I thought, well, shoot, if I can you know, I'll start training. I practice. I certainly can do that. And boy, the fall off in that short period of time was tremendous. And I thought there's something else ha happening here. And of course, that's about the time I started having blood work and trying to figure out why I'm so tired. And 
uh, my family doc was great. I said, well, I, maybe I just need to hang it up and just recognize it, that middle age has not been kind. And he said, yeah, that might be some of the contribution, but it's probably not the whole thing. So how do you look at your life now, the remaining life you have left? I mean, you've you so you are you I hate the term the new normal, but sarcoidosis lends itself very well to that. So uh, have you gotten accustomed to the new normal? Are you determined to reset the new normal? Where, where are you with all that? Yeah, it's a great question, John. Appreciate asking. I, I think I have accepted that things have changed and I'm. I'm generally okay with that. I try to keep pushing a little further along. The cardiac stuff, if I'm really honest, is a little concerning to me because I can tell since my surgery, I am not the same. Um, I did one bike ride with my brother down in your neck of the woods and I struggled to finish. And that never happened on a bike before. Like I I did not know. I, I had to stop and sit down for a little bit at different points. That has never happened to me. So to me, it's a little concerning and knowing that there's this injury that needs attention uh, and we don't know what caused it, that has me a little bit cautious because I don't want to do something that would be grave. Um, uh, but at the same time, I also don't want to sit here and do nothing. So I continue to try. And I think for me, it might be a matter of adjusting expectations and enjoying what I can do more than grieving what I can't. Um, uh, you had introduced me to uh, Kevin Moore, uh, someone who had uh, corresponded with you. And I just really admire his attitude about the same because he has lost a tremendous amount. He's about 10 years younger than me, but he has just adjusted his attitude. And I just really admire that about him. So we've maintained some contact in the past two months or so. That's great. That's great. I'm glad, glad to have made that connection for you and, uh, and hope it, hope it works out uh, for both of you. Um, well, uh, do you have any advice for people who are uh, just kind of wading into the sarcoidosis battle or maybe even anybody who's been in it for a while? I, you know, it's, it's probably the advice I, had received and maybe wished I had received. I would say that um, sorry about that that the uh, the original diagnosis be prepared. It's never definitive. Um, the only definitive diagnosis is when you have a biopsy, and mine failed. And all of the attempts to really understand it are often met with more tests, and that that continues to today. So I would say just be patient with the process. Um, I, I would say too, just really take stock in who you have to support you. Um, those closest to you are going to support you and be sympathetic. It's a very difficult disease to explain to other people. And most of the time, I think I'm not that much different. Most people don't know that you're dealing with something. And so, you know, just saying what it is, it's in some ways, if you just told someone you have cancer, it's easier. Not that the disease itself is easier, but it's just easier. People can put their hands and wrap around it. But the mm -hmm. sarcoidosis is just a strange, strange condition that is hard to manage, hard to identify. And it's, uh, my eye specialist says, I want to make sure we're on top of this because SARC does what it wants. It goes wherever it wants and does whatever it wants. So it can show up in the oddest places. And just be prepared. It doesn't you don't have to be hopeless in that, but just be aware that it it can manifest itself in different places. And 
it always seems unique. Yeah, it always does. <laughs> when people ask you, well, what do you have? And you say sarcoidosis, and then they look at you funny, and then you start trying to explain it. And you either get to it pretty quickly or uh, or you don't, which is typical. And then and their eyes start to glaze over like, sorry, I asked. Yeah. <laughs> We're glad we can laugh about it. But, well, John Martin, thank you so much for sharing your story with us here on the FSR Starfighter podcast. Thank you, John. I appreciate all that you're doing. I feel like a zombie just feeding at stumbling thank you so much to john for sharing his story uh, i hope that he continues to improve that he recovers from the open heart surgery and that and that ultimately his doctors are correct and that whatever is going on with his heart is not sarcoidosis related uh, and that and that everything else uh, continues to go well for him and thank you again john for sharing your story i i hope all of you are enjoying this podcast and i do want to ask you to help me reach more people so FSR and the podcast can be as effective as possible. And it does help us reach more people and grow the show if you'll share it on your social media and give it a nice review if you get an opportunity. Okay, the official Sark Fighter song is called Zombie by Mark Steyer and his band, The White Hot Lizards. You can hear Mark's story, the story behind the lyrics, in episode 12. The podcast comes out every other Monday. As I'm speaking today, my trusty dog, Dougal, my boxer, is curled up in the chair in my office. And I think I shared with you last time that I was contemplating adopting a foster puppy named Shandy. And that did happen. So Shandy is now also a part, a part of my life and making it better. She is not in my office because she's chewing on everything presently. So she is downstairs in the utility room, but we'll be going for a walk shortly. So I'm sure you'll be getting lots of updates on Shandy. By the way, the backstory to the founding of the Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research is episode 11 with Andrea and Redding Wilson. And I'd like to invite you to follow Sark Fighter on social media, uh, on Facebook, on Instagram. I mentioned Peloton. I have a cycling blog called Carl and the Cyclist, which has a section called Cycling with Sarcoidosis. And if you're new here and you're just trying to figure out what Sark is, go back and listen to episode two with Dr. Simon Hart. And my story is episode one. And it's been brought to my attention that some people who are listening on Spotify can only go back to about episode 10, and they're not able to get to those early episodes. I don't know what to do about that. That is a software thing. I will investigate it. But uh, as far as I know, if you listen on Apple Podcasts or if you go to the original, the host of this podcast, which is Podbean, that you should be able to to find all of those early episodes. Podbean is all one word, P-O-D, B as in boy, E-A-N as in Nancy. Okay, so go look up the Sark Fighter on Podbean and see if that doesn't help you out. Please send me an email if you want to contact me. It's in the show notes. And until next time, keep fighting. Trying to keep up the pace, dead.